0: Well, good morning. Our time is limited, so we will begin. I will introduce myself. I'm Lou Walton. If you have come to know me as a, uh, as a writer and speaker on religious topics, I perhaps should reintroduce myself. I am also a tax trial attorney. Uh, try tax cases in federal court and senior counsel in the tax department to the firm of Buckhalter Niemer in Los Angeles. Those are relevant uh, credentials simply because what we're talking about this morning has much to do with taxation. Our topic is tax-exempt entities navigating the minefield. How you bring them into being, how you run them, and how, hopefully, you avoid getting into trouble because there are traps there into which you can fall. And what we're talking about this morning revolves extensively around a term which in Adventism is almost as frequently used as other terms such as Second Coming, Sabbath, Spirit of Prophecy, and Vegetarianism. And that term is 501c3. Now, there are in the Internal Revenue Code uh, thousands of provisions starting with section one which defines the marginal tax brackets we all pay in various forms and entities and representations all the way down through the seven thousand series of the code which has to do with federal tax crimes most people could not cogently recite a single provision of the internal revenue code except for section 501c3 that one we know well Adventists are entrepreneurs and I appreciate that about them. They are constantly thinking up new and innovative ways in which to do the Lord's work, which is good. And in order to do that effectively, it is very, very helpful to become a tax exempt entity, which opens doors to a whole galaxy of advantages to you. For example, Exemption from taxation both on the federal and state level. In instances where there may be securities regulations uh, that impinge on you, you may be exempt from securities regulation. It opens the door for donors to your entity to uh, get tax deductions on Schedule A of their return under Section 170 of the code. You may be eligible for donations for which the donor can deduct for estate and gift tax purposes. You may be eligible for reduced mailing uh, rates and in certain states for property tax exemption. So there's a whole galaxy of advantages that you enjoy as a tax exempt entity. So Adventists will come up with some new and better way to do the, the Lord's work And the first thing they will say is, I'm going to get me a 501c3. And those are the magic terms that open the door for you. What are you talking about? Why is it c3? Simply because section 501 of the Internal Revenue Code, subparagraph c, has over 20 different kinds of entities that the law recognizes as being entitled to tax deduction tax exemption and deduction for donations all the way from some collective bargaining entities through homeowners associations and now we get down to sub, uh, sub part C of, of section 501 subparagraph 3 which allows exemption for charitable religious educational scientific literary public safety amateur sports and societies for the prevention of cruelty to children and animals That's the basket you're falling into. All of those things are deemed by Congress to be worthy of a tax exemption under Section 501c3. So lots of advantages to it. And before I go on, I need to make it real clear. I do not represent any of you in this room, to my knowledge. I cannot represent you in the absence of a relationship memorialized in writing you know as a uh, a retention letter by my firm so I want to be very very clear I am not intending this morning to give any of you specific legal advice you need to get competent professional help where you are okay Uh, that's the only legal advice I'm going to give you this morning. Get represented by somebody in your area who knows this stuff and knows it well. Our purpose this morning is to give you a background by which you can more intelligently decide if you want to maybe pursue the option of an exempt entity and then more intelligently relate to the the tax professionals who will be giving you assistance. Bear in mind also I'm a California lawyer. I'm licensed nowhere else except in the federal tax system. I practice for the IRS as well, and bear in further mind that what I'm giving you is the law as it exists today, that doesn't mean tomorrow it won't change. And in today's fluid environment, it could change by this afternoon, okay. All right, there are lots of advantages, to enjoying tax-exempt status, there are disadvantages as well. And as you think about whether you want to go down that route, think not only of the advantages, but of the disadvantages, some of which can be encapsulated under the concept that when you go tax-exempt, you are in a quasi-partnership with whom? Uncle Sam. Because Uncle Sam will say, you don't have to pay tax on your income, with some exceptions we'll get to, your donors can deduct from their income tax the the gifts they make to you which means then that in a sense you are using government money and with government participation can come what? As banks and auto manufacturers have learned significant government intrusion. So think that through before you make the decision to go into tax-exempt statuses. Uh, You may be prohibited from engaging in certain activities. Certain commercial activities may be deemed to be unrelated business income. Go too far down that road, you lose your tax-exempt status, as did the publishers of Christianity Today the Presbyterian Reformed Publishing House, which was doing so much commercial work the IRS finally said, you're acting like a commercial publisher, you're no longer tax exempt, and they won in court. So there are disadvantages, there are a lot of record keeping requirements that if you do not do them right, you can wind up in either a little bit of trouble or a whole lot of trouble depending on just how badly you ignored them. There are reporting requirements every year. Typically you will have to file a return called Form 990 or if you're deemed to be a private foundation, Form 990-PF or if you're engaging in enough business that the government says that's unrelated business income, that's not in furtherance of your exempt purposes, you gotta file a 990-T and report that and take it into income and pay income tax on it. So there are a lot of technicalities here you may have to file with your state's attorney general as some exempt entities have to do in California. You open your records to public review and there are severe sanctions for misbehavior. Let me give you just a little hint of, of some of the technicalities you get into when you embark on a, a tax-exempt entity. For example, just as an example, how do you handle tax-deductible gifts? Well, the donor under Section 170 of the Code can deduct those on his or her Schedule A A as a charitable deduction to you. And gifts by check to you, which will frequently come in real late in the year, are deemed to have been made when the donor signs the check and puts it in the mail. And oftentimes they'll do that late in the day on December 31. You then have to issue a receipt. Your receipt will be dated in the next year, but the donor will be seeking a deduction for the prior year. You get into timing issues like that. Gifts by check are ordinarily deemed made and deductible when the check is delivered or mailed to the uh, charitable organization, regardless of when you receive it. Same thing with a credit card uh, deduction and donation. How do you handle donations coming into you? Internal Revenue Code Section 501 C three and the Treasury Regulations that interpret it require you, require you to provide a contemporaneous written acknowledgement of receipt of the gift. Now, when the gift is made on December 31 and you provide your contemporaneous receipt on January 2 of the next year, already you begin to see that there are some timing problems and issues there. If somebody gives you over $250 in cash, you have to give a written receipt and you should put on that receipt whether or not the donor received anything in response for it. Sometimes people will send out little gifts. You got to account for that. If you aren't doing that, if your donors are simply making donations to you, then you should put on there a notification that that no goods or services were received by the donor except for intangible religious benefits. Be sure the notation's on the receipt. If your donors don't get that receipt, there's a time bomb ticking about a year later when they come under audit or two years they're gonna come back to you and say where's the receipt I was supposed to get and why isn't that notation on there and you're liable to have some very unhappy people out there so record-keeping requirements are extremely important gifts under two hundred and fifty dollars don't require that and if people aggregate gifts that ultimately Uh, add up to over 250 but no single gift is that large you don't have to provide a receipt. If they give you a gift of uh, property in excess of $5,000 they have to have it appraised by a qualified appraiser in order to enjoy a tax deduction. You are not and should not assume the responsibility of valuing that property. That is not your role, you're sticking your neck out to do it. Okay, just an example of some of the record-keeping issues that you face when you go into partnership with Uncle Sam in a tax-exempt entity. So, point number one of what we want to say this morning is you make the decision, do I want to do this or don't I want to do it? And as I'll be pointing out in my presentation this afternoon, Uh, Back when uh, the leaders of the nine largest banks in America were summoned to the office of the Secretary of the Treasury, they were told, we will be handing you billions of dollars and we will be buying stock in your bank. Some of the bankers said, we don't want it. And Secretary of the Treasury said, that's tough. You're going to sign the document. And all nine of them did. Sometimes you don't have a choice as to whether to get involved with Uncle Sam. Here you do and make that decision wisely. Is this the type, are the advantages here sufficient to overcome the disadvantages? That's a decision only you can make. Point number two, how do you get one of these things started? How do you form a tax exempt entity? This morning, I'm going to be discussing just one way to do it. You can do it as a sole proprietorship, as an LLC, as some sort of uh, lesser uh, entity than a corporation. I'm going to discuss and recommend using the corporate form for simplification of our presentation. Plus, I think it's the better way to go. It's the more formalized way to go. So you form a corporation, or as one of my clients came in one day years ago, said, I want to form an incorporation. Well... What's the very first thing you do? Now let me find out just how, uh, I don't want to talk down to you, I don't want to say things you already know. What's the first thing you do when you form a corporation? What's the first decision you make? Huh? you got to decide what you're going to call it. Okay? You select a name. Then do you just happily... Put that name into a whole complex structure called corporate articles, your corporate charter, and send it off to the Secretary of State? No, you don't, because somebody else might have got there ahead of you with that name. If, for example, you decide, here is how I'm gonna help the Lord's work. I'm going to form the foundation for the preservation of health through the gluten burger diet. End of quote. That's the name of your corporation what if just two weeks before somebody else got the same idea and you go to register your corporation and they're the thing sits already formed in somebody else's name foundation for the preservation of health through the Glutenberger diet. You inquire of the Secretary of State, you reserve a name in advance so you know it's good and be real careful that you don't intentionally or unintentionally infringe on the intellectual property of somebody else. For example, using somebody else's name in your title that may be subject to prior rights, either copyright or other commercial rights. Uh, I think we're all aware that the Adventist church has subjected the term Seventh-day Adventist and reasonable derivatives thereof to copyright protection and to use that term may run you afoul of other issues which you would just as soon avoid. So as you choose your name, choose it carefully, don't unintentionally uh, step on a pre-existing proprietary name. Number two, you gotta select an agent for service of process. A corporation is not a living, breathing person. You can't find the thing. It just exists in the, in the records of your state's secretary of state. So most states, if not all, require that when you form one, you designate a living person on whom anybody who wants to sue you can serve, basically, summons and complaint in a lawsuit. So you've got to designate a person as the designated agent for service of process. Number three, draft your Articles of Incorporation. And let me tell you how not to do it. Don't decide you're going to form a charitable organization, but you want to save a little bit of money in lawyer and accounting fees. So you say to yourself, wait a second, didn't Archie several years ago form a tax exempt entity called the Foundation for the Preservation of Health Through the Gluten Diet? yeah comes to me that he did well let's call Archie let's get a copy of his articles of incorporation have him copy them, send them over to us and we'll just scratch out what doesn't apply to us and put our name in don't do it do this thing right draft your articles have them drafted competently by somebody who knows how to do it because if you mess this up what's going to happen a lot of people say well I want to do something for the Lord I want to do something very special I want to form a tax-exempt entity and then they do things in such a slipshod way that the unintended result of all of their efforts is to bring discredit on the work of God rather than credit if you wind up with a tangled mess that it takes several lawyers to untangle you haven't brought credit on anybody and the real risk here is you've taken donor's money and you've basically dissipated it in mismanagement. Now we'll get to the the rights and liabilities of that in a few minutes. Get this thing done right. For the small amount that it costs you to get your articles drafted properly, do so. This is not a legal Zoom type of enterprise. It needs to be looked at specifically. The purposes for which you're forming this corporation will be highly specific to you, to your ideas of spreading, uh, of spreading the gospel, the ways in which you do that, the services you will be providing, all of these are highly specific. They don't lend themselves to cookie-cutter reproduction. Now, here's something else you need to be aware of. In the old days you could get what's called an advance ruling from the IRS. You would send your whole package in, you would apply for tax exempt status, they would issue an advance ruling which is good typically back in those days for a year. Okay? At the end of which time you have to take further affirmative steps to be sure that the IRS still considers you to be the entity that they gave you the advance ruling on. I can't tell you how many times I've looked in minute books all I found were the articles sometimes certified sometimes not even certified by the secretary of state a copy of their form 1023 maybe if they can find it in their files that's the application by which you seek tax exemption and a copy of the initial determination letter an advance ruling from the IRS saying that for the next 12 months we consider you to be tax exempt and five years have gone by there is not a single entry in there for board minutes no annual reporting no nothing it is as if people think that when they when they got that advance ruling it was like Tetzel's indulgence when the money dropped in the chest your soul flew free Well, it doesn't work that way. If you're going to do this, do it right. Get yourself a checklist, which we're going to be going through this morning, and follow it religiously. You gals in the audience wouldn't presume to put a dinner together without following the recipe carefully and getting it right. And if you don't, the result shows up. An embarrassing reality on your dinner table. You don't want to take that chance, so you do it right. We need to do the same thing when we're going through the process of forming one of these tax exempt entities. So, draft your Articles of Incorporation, get competent help, and then what's the next thing you do? Please. You said previously you That's no longer the case. You do not get advance rulings anymore. We'll talk about that in a moment. The question was previously you could get an advance ruling. Is that no longer the case? And the IRS has promulgated a new treasury regulation, which leaves a room open for a lot of concern about during that period from when you file your application for exemption to when you get some kind of ruling from the service, uh, what about the donations made to you? There's kind of a hiatus there. There's room for concern. I am inclined to think that the, you know, the rationality will prevail and people who, in all honesty and good faith, make donations to somebody who's properly uh, filed an application for exemption will probably have those honored on their tax return. But, but there's a little bit of uncertainty with respect to that. Okay, so you made the decision. You're gonna incorporate. You draft your articles of incorporation. You do that correctly they're tailored for your intended purpose for the intended services you will provide, what's the next thing you do? Pardon? File them! them. Send them typically to your Secretary of State in whatever jurisdiction you're located. And when you file them, what are you going to ask for? You're going to, in California they'll provide free of charge up to two certified copies you are going to send along a little extra check and say, Mr. or Ms. Secretary of State, send me four or five certified copies of my articles. One of which is going to go where? In your minute book. In your minute book. Another one you'll probably need for your nonprofit mailing permit. Okay? another one you'll probably need for any local licenses or permits another one you will probably need for any local tax exemption in California we have the franchise tax board you're going to want to be able to prove not only to the federal government but to your state that you're tax exempt you're going to be wanting to do what open a bank account and the bank will probably want to see certified articles so you'll need several copies of that thing and just do so up front. You can always go back and get them later, but that takes probably from two to four weeks, depending on how slowly uh, people work. In California with, uh, you know, with uh, state officials working on IOUs for a while, it got a little slow getting things, particularly if, as Governor Schwarzenegger has done, the, the people to whom you're asking for these services are furloughed from one to four days a month. So do it up front send a little extra money get your extra certified copies you don't have to go back do it later and wait All right, you've got your minute book you have your certified articles of incorporation what's the next thing you just might want what's the next document you might want for your organization a set of bylaws because those are the governing blueprint for how you're going to do business Get a professional to draft them. Once again, this ain't legal Zoom. You have a specific idea that you're going to use in the Lord's work. You have very specific applications of what you're you're going to be uh, using the law to accomplish. Get your bylaws done properly. Put a copy in the minute book. You will want to select a tax year and a method of accounting. Very important. Don't forget to do that. Now you say method of accounting, tax year, we're tax exempt aren't we? Sure, but every year you've got to file even as a tax exempt organization you have got to file a return called form 990. That's if you're lucky. That's if the service determines you're a public charity as opposed to a private foundation. We'll get to that in a second you wind up being a private foundation you'll have to file a 990 PF and if you fall into another gopher hole and you engage in business beyond the scope of your exempt purpose and you develop unrelated business income you gotta file a form 990T okay? So you will have to determine a fiscal year you're going to have to uh, determine an accounting method and all of that is up front. All of that's going to wind up where? In the minutes of the first meeting of your Board of Directors. You will also have to secure a what? Employer ID number, EIN. You've got to secure an employer ID number Even if your organization is very small and for the moment you don't intend to employ anybody, why do you need an EIN? Because that becomes the number by which the IRS recognizes your organization. If you don't have a number in in today's tax society, it don't exist. You can send your name into the IRS, the first thing they respond with is what is your social security number What's your taxpayer identification number in the case of an entity they want an employer ID number and you apply for that on IRS form SS4 okay very easy to do online you can do it online you can do it over the telephone but don't neglect to do it because if you neglect to do it, and then you fill out your application for tax exemption, there's going to be one big, huge hole on the first page of Form 1023 that has to be filled in before you can file it. So you've got to get your EIN. All right what's another thing you might want to do early on once once you have uh, formed your tax exempt entity you'll want to apply for tax exemption not only from the federal government but if your local state has income tax might you want also to be exempt from that so you'll want to apply for state income tax exemption often states will you know honor a federal determination you file with them a copy of your determination letter by the federal government Other housekeeping details to do business, you may want to have an office, a local uh, municipality may require you to have a local license or permit to do that, file for that. And some states, as in California, say that if you are deemed to be a public benefit corporation, which is what you're hoping to be, You also have to file with the state attorney general so he or she is aware you're out there and standing now as an exempt, tax exempt entity in the status of kind of a trustee of funds for somebody out there in the public for whom you are the benefactor. Okay. Public benefit is what you want to try to convince the IRS you are. If you fail there, they will deem that you are a private foundation and you run afoul of a whole lot of issues like a 2% annual excise tax you've got to pay and a lot of returns you've got to file and a lot of very, very specific uh, regulations that you otherwise wouldn't have to encounter if you're deemed to be public benefit. So let's summarize up till now. Question, sir. Say public benefit does that mean Let me, uh, your, your question is basically, does public benefit mean public benefit with the United within the United States? And the answer is yes. You can uh, then uh, be of benefit to uh, you know, populations overseas and entities overseas. but if you do not benefit uh, a, a population within the United States, it becomes irrelevant for. US tax purposes uh... some uh, some public benefit corporations become conduits you know for sending uh... funds overseas but you do have to have a an on-site domestic constituency okay so the point i'm making here is th- is there just a little bit of detail here now i've hit this very fast and very light what you have here doesn't begin to be a comprehensive checklist of all the things you have to do Do you understand that this is the type of thing where you need to stop, slow down, look at the checklist, look at what the law and the regulations require, do it right, or to put it in the vernacular on this one, you want to measure twice and cut once. Get it right the first time. I can't tell you how many uh, charitable entities that I have uh, represented where corners were cut, where people simply were sloppy, The mindset seems to be, I'm doing the work of God, I can't be bothered with this stuff. And the problem is, you can't be bothered with it, but sooner or later, Uncle Sam is perfectly capable of bothering you. Now, stay ahead of the power curve and you're gonna find life a whole lot happier and a whole lot simpler. Okay, point number one, do you wanna do this? If you do, point number two, how do you do it? How do you get it started? This was a very quick trip through. Now, point number three, once you have your exempt entity filed with the Secretary of State so you have become something a living breathing organization out there recognized by the state we got to go through startup details what's next what would be the first thing you would want to do well you'd want to hold your first meeting of the board of directors now if the articles of incorporation don't specify the names of the directors then the incorporators will have to meet to name them but you will need, uh, need to have a board of directors who will then meet, and here are the, here are the actions they want to take at your first meeting. I'm going to run through this rapidly because we don't have a lot of time to dwell on it, but here are, are the actions that at your first meeting of the board of directors you'll want to consider. Number one, please, how many members is the, uh, the question is how many members and that will vary from state to state. California typically three, but it'll vary from one jurisdiction to another. All right, number one, the board of directors will have to determine that the corporation is duly formed. Well, the first thing they do is say, yeah, we're duly formed, we accept the fact the corporation exists. Number two, they will want to record in the minutes of the corporation that the meeting is held, duly held, due uh, to, uh, pursuant to valid notice. Meetings that are held without adequate notice under the articles and bylaws are invalid meetings. They'll want to certainly record that a quorum was present. They will want to approve any minutes of the meeting. They should direct the filings already certified by the Secretary of State to become a part of the minute book. In other words, the board of directors is now ratifying all this stuff that you have done, but in doing so, they have now created a set of minutes, your first organizational minutes, where any reviewer, IRS, or any critical onlooker can go back and say, yeah, this was done, this was done, this was done on this date by these people, pursuant to a meeting properly and validly called, where a quorum was present. Are you following me? Is this making sense? All right. The directors will adopt bylaws, a corporate seal, and they will go through a whole list of directorial resolutions. Number one, authorizing the opening of a bank account. Okay, pretty important. If you're not going to open a bank account, if you don't need to open a bank account, you didn't need to do all this stuff in the first place. Because this is all about money, which is then going to be transferred into some viable project that will help people and in helping people help the work of God, okay? So you'll want to open a bank account. You'll want to select accountants. We work really closely with the public accounting community. My son is not only a tax attorney, but is a CPA, and I, we, we just work hand in glove with the public accounting community. Very important, you, 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 you get a qualified, trained professional on this thing. I strongly recommend against TurboTax. It didn't work for Geithner. Okay? It probably, I'm not putting down on the product, but I'm saying in in organizing a tax-exempt entity, it's more complex than maybe doing your own income tax. You'll want to establish an accounting year. The directors should pass a resolution with respect to that. They should resolve authorizing you to apply for an employer ID number. They should authorize your maintaining books and records they should authorize the corporations paying for its start-up expenses because you will have encountered some with paid professionals and until the directors authorize payment it's not proper to take money out of the corporate bank account to pay for that stuff and then you probably if you're going to have employees will want to register they should authorize your registering with your state's employment development department Okay? And you just might want to secure a nonprofit mailing permit. All of that stuff, if it's in your minute books, looks business like. You know when the action was taken. You have authority for taking the action. You have avoided what? You've avoided the problem later of an auditor coming in and saying, Well, you did this, this, and this, Mr. President of, you know, Glutenberger Inc. Foundation. But where's your authority? By the way, you paid your son as an independent contractor for doing the following things for the foundation. Where's your authority? Did the board vote on this? Did they review it? Were they made aware of the relationship between you and your son? Did they explore the possibility of getting a better deal from a non-related party? Do you understand the kind of vortex you can get sucked into if you don't have record keeping that shows you went through this thing item by item, the board made intelligent, informed decisions? Okay? Any questions on that? Am I making myself reasonably clear? I guess what we're trying to do is navigate you through the minefield so you don't step on one of these things. Okay. Yes, sir? Yeah, some of the things that the directors should memorialize. And I recognize I'm talking fast because I'm also looking at my clock. Nothing makes me more nervous than to be trying a case in court. And as I'm trying the case, the judge is writing down and looking up at the clock. Okay? Because I know and she knows that the case was, you know, to have ended by a certain time. And so I'm kind of hurrying in, in order to make the time. But let's go over that real quickly here. Resolutions the director should adopt. Authorizing, actually ratifying the filing of the articles with the Secretary of State, okay? Bylaws, they should adopt those. Bank accounts, authorize the opening of those. Select your paid professionals, accountants, and legal counsel. Establish an accounting year, which typically probably will be a calendar year, but it may be different. Secure your employer ID number. Authorize startup expenses. You will have hopefully hired some competent professional to help put this together for you. He or she deserves to be paid. That, however, should be authorized by the board of directors, as should every other major issue. Register with your state's employment development department. Secure a nonprofit mailing permit. One other that I didn't mention earlier is uh, determine uh, a formal address for the uh, principal office. Now, all of this could sound terminally silly if we step back 10 yards and recognize that an awful lot of this is going to be happening around the kitchen table. Okay? <laughs> a lot of these foundations, when they get started, are very informal, very small, and therein lies the risk because the board of directors may be dad, mom, and junior. And we'll get to Form 1023 in just a few minutes when they ask you. Are you, is your board of directors all related? The IRS, by the way, has an enforcement campaign ongoing now because a lot of abuses have taken place. In the name of tax-exempt organizations, people have used tax exempts in order to take private money and somehow recirculate it for private benefit. The service just hates that. They're looking at it with a magnifying glass. That's why Form 1023 asks a lot of embarrassing questions including when you hire your top five people, anybody are earning over fifty thousand dollars a year did you do a community study to determine whether their salaries are even reasonable in comparison with the kind of salaries other people in like positions in the community are earning. Service is really tightening up on using these things for what is called private inurement. that is taking tax-exempt money and somehow carefully filtering that thing back into somebody's private hands. Okay, enough said on that for the moment. Board of Directors will also, let me continue in response to your question, we're moving forward prospectively, elect a chairman of the board, that makes sense, and a president, or, or both. You know, it's and or. Uh, a secretary and a chief financial officer. And finally, they will authorize the doing of what? What? Applying for tax exempt status. Because you ain't there yet. Just because you're nonprofit doesn't mean you're recognizably tax exempt. In today's society, a lot of for profits are also nonprofit. You following me? Just because you filed articles with a Secretary of State that says, we're a nonprofit, no part of the uh, proceeds of this uh, foundation shall be applied to private endearment, you go through all of the boilerplate language required by 501c3 and the regs, and then you get that thing filed, are you now exempt, tax exempt? No, you're not. What do you have to do next? Please, question. You don't have to have three separate, but president and secretary typically have to be two different people, okay? And again, I'm giving you California law, and the question was basically if you have three people, uh, can one person serve, you know, in uh, the various capacities, president, CFO, secretary. In California, the secretary should be a separate and discreet uh, individual, okay? Let me very, very quickly talk about the liabilities of directors. Here's where you can get hurt. Typically, a director of a nonprofit corporation has to act in what he or she believes to be the best interests of the corporation including reasonable inquiry that an ordinarily prudent person in a like position would use. Period, end of quote. That's the nuclear option. What have I just said? What I've said is that the law has created a standard for you, as the director of a nonprofit corporation, of a tax exempt entity, that anybody can Monday morning quarterback later. That's my wife's phone, by the way. <laughs> we will discuss this at further detail <laughs> later on. <laughs> And wouldn't you know, she answered the thing. (laughs) All right, the reasonable prudent person standard is nothing more than the court with the luxury of, of looking backward at everything you did, the court can say well under those circumstances we would have done the following when under the gun you might not have met that standard there's the risk you run the reasonable prudent standard is one that you're required to operate under as a uh, as a director of a nonprofit those are fateful words because they allow an awful lot of second guessing of what's going on there I one time sat on the board of a very very large nonprofit corporation where management was stealing from it. I could see it, I could smell it, you lift the lid the thing stank. I could not get the board to take action on that thing, I tried everything I could until the IRS came along and said we found out about it and your tax exemption is now at issue. And I fought like a tiger to keep that entity from losing its exemption. The guy that was stealing went to federal prison and after that he went to state prison. Now, do you suppose under those circumstances there can be officer and director liability? You bet your life. Uh, We saved that one, but you can't always save them. Okay, so you've got to be very, very careful as an officer and director that you act in good faith and you do the things that are necessary. And, and, And as you make your decisions, as you memorialize this stuff in the minute book, think to yourself, if I were looking at this thing from the outside, from the luxury of the future, and anything goes wrong here, have my actions been reasonable, prudent, have I reasonably inquired, if I were sitting in judgment on myself as a, as a separate and apart individual, how would I judge my behavior? Okay. That suggests you just might want to have insurance. So another action that the board might take would be to authorize at the very least commercial general liability insurance. You probably would also want to have coverages for the employees. If you're going to have employees, you'll want to have workers comp coverage. Most states will require that. You might seriously want to consider getting directors and officers liability coverage that would cover you for claims we've just talked about in the moments preceding here. And you might also want to have professional liability insurance. If, for example, you're a clinic and you're doing any kind of hands-on procedure, you're doing massage, you're doing uh, diabetic testing, so there's a finger prick. Be sure that you have licensed people doing this kind of thing and it would be very very wise for you to have professional liability insurance in case one of the individuals whom under the corporate charter you exist to benefit doesn't later come back and say I was feeling great till I went in there and that gal put her hands on me and I've been walking crooked ever since okay Professional liability insurance, a good idea for the board to adopt that. Be aware that there is a a federal law called the Volunteer Protection Act of 1997. You'll find it in 42 U.S. Code 14501 and following, where there is limited federal protection for volunteers who are providing services to a nonprofit entity And it's kind of limited to the following circumstances. If the volunteer was acting within the scope of his or her responsibilities... They're very easy to to later go back and say, well, you stepped outside the scope of your responsibilities, but if you're acting within the scope of your responsibilities, the Volunteer Protection Act helps. If the volunteer held any requisite license or certification, as for example, a phlebotomist, when you're doing diabetic testing, you need to have a licensed individual there doing those finger sticks. That will help to protect you under the Volunteer Protection Act of 97. Uh, you've got to be really sure the act, the damage uh, to the corporation or public did not result from willful or criminal misconduct, gross negligent, reckless misconduct, or conscious flagrant indifference to the rights and safety of the individual involved. That's what the code section says, and if I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, that's the first thing I'm going to uh, 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 allege in my lawsuit that you didn't do it's easy all you need is a couple hundred dollars for a filing fee you can file these lawsuits easy and one of the early allegations in the lawsuit would be on or about a certain date the plaintiff was injured by so and so corporation and their employees who operated with willful gross negligent misconduct and a conscious flagrant indifference to the rights and safety of the plaintiff now you're defending a lawsuit where you may be you know, at least pled out of the umbrella of protection of the Volunteer Protection Act of 1997. So all I'm saying is it's there, it's designed to kind of make it safer to be a volunteer but it has holes in it. And it doesn't cover the operation of a motor vehicle so if you're a volunteer for a a tax exempt and you have a traffic accident uh, you're, you're not protected. Okay, let's move on very quickly looking at the time. Record keeping and reporting requirements. We've talked about the importance of having good records. Keep, especially keep your financial records real clear. Terribly important that you do that. If you're ever audited, if your tax exempt is audited, you're going to want to have financial records that are clear that don't require a lot of embarrassing explanation. Yes, sir. receipts for donations uh, are, are sometimes done by email it can be printed out on the other end uh, easily enough and the timing is is now conveniently subject to verification because of your email records so yes I, I see no problem in issuing receipts by email we're moving to that now uh, we're moving rapidly into an era in which people can effectively wind up signing documents without meaning to simply by responding Uh, to uh, an inquiry for example about a contract and you sign sign off on that thing and hit send and you may have been deemed to have uh, issued an electronic signature that would validate an otherwise invalid unenforceable oral contract be really careful that's a whole uh, different uh, arena we're talking about but yeah we're moving into an era in which you can easily make that mistake all right yes reasonable time. The question is, how soon do you have to send a receipt after somebody uh, sends you a gift? And if it's over $250, uh, you, you have to do so within a reasonable time. Commercially reasonable time would probably deem that to be within two weeks. I wouldn't make it more than a month. And uh, you have some very upset donors if you exceed that period of time. Yes. All right, let's talk about now applying for exemption. We're gonna have to really scoot through this, but point number four, number one, we've made the decision whether to go or not go with a tax exempt, we decided we're gonna apply. Number two, we formed the thing. Number three, what we've just been talking about is your start-up evolution, the things you gotta do. Now, let's talk about applying for an exemption. Nonprofit status does not automatically ensure an exemption. You have to affirmatively apply for it, and here is how you do it. There is Form 1023. All 26 pages of it, plus a checklist. I'm going to run through a little bit of this because I want to emphasize on you how seriously the service takes this stuff and how concerned they are that tax-exempt entities might be misused for personal benefit. Form 1023 ought to be done by a qualified tax professional. You will have to list the primary uh, uh, contact person, officer, director, or trustee, who will be signing this thing under penalty of perjury. You are making representations to the government under penalty of perjury. You better get it right. Bear in mind that's where Martha Stewart went bad. If she'd come out and said, sure I did it and I recommend everybody else do it, she might not have gone to federal prison. But when she tried to play it cute with respect to truth or lack thereof with respect to the federal government uh, you get into real trouble. You've got to list your website. They assume you will have some. It isn't an optional uh, requirement. Your email address is optional. Your website is not. You are assumed to have a website. You have to list it there. You have to give a narrative of your activities. You have to tell the government, here's what we propose to do. Here is the population group we propose to benefit here are the people we're gathering together and their expertise that can deliver the goods in a way that justifies a tax exemption. They don't even give you room to write it here in part four, they just tell you what to write. They assume you will attach a lengthy narrative of what it is exactly you propose to do. And then part five gets really charming. Compensation and other financial arrangements with your officers, directors, trustees, employees, and independent contractors. (coughs) Listen to question 1A. List the names, titles, and mailing addresses of all of your officers, directors, and trustees. For each person, list their total annual compensation. What's the IRS worrying about here? Let me diagram it for you if I can find an eraser. Yeah, let's diagram it. Here is the donor as the IRS conceives him to be. Okay, the proverbial fat cat. He gives money to the exempt organization which is nominally designed to benefit a population group. And the larger the better. The service prefers to see a large population group benefited by this. What they're concerned about is some of that money comes out to guess who? This guy's daughter who is taken on as an employee for $150,000 a year. Let's give her some hair, okay. Who then hires her son for $80,000 a year. Who also hires her mother for a substantial sum who contracts with him who's say just ABC a building contractor to engage in building projects Uh, for example the new office for the exempt organization this is what the service is concerned about money flowing from a private party to a nominally exempt entity and then trickling back through various means either to the donor or to unintended improper beneficiaries. Now with that little drawing in mind, let's go through some of the questions. They got four whole pages of this stuff in Form 1023. First one is listing the names of the officers, directors, and trustees. Item B in part five. List the names, titles, and mailing addresses of each of your five highest compensated employees receiving more than $50,000 per year. And 50,000 ain't that much anymore. Item C, list the names, business, and mailing addresses of your five highest compensated independent contractors who will receive more than 50,000 a year now listen to the follow-up questions are any of your officers directors or trustees related to each other through family or business relationships that's what we're drawing here if yes identify the individuals and the relationships question B Do you have a business relationship with any of your officers, directors or trustees other than through their position as an officer, director or trustee? In other words, does this guy have a partner? Let me draw it for you and we'll do it in another color here. This guy's got a partner also conceived uh, by the IRS as being a fat cat, okay? who is in some way going to benefit from the exempt entity. See, this is A and B partnership. And the partner here now benefits. He's not a family member, so he doesn't have to be disclosed as a relative. But the question's entitled to poke into that area of potential abuse. You got a business relationship with any of these people. Are any of your officers, directors or trustees related to your highest compensated employees? You see one by one doors slamming shut here through which we could play little games and used to play games with the IRS and this thing is the subject of a national enforcement campaign they're looking for this kind of thing. Yes sir? Under what circumstances do, you do this law uh, under what? Circumstances do what? You typically fill it out once unless you change the purpose for your organization or the way you operate it. If you if you if you fill this thing out and give the IRS a profile and you say this is who we are, this is what we're going to do. We're in the business of providing massage services for people suffering from fibromyalgia and it's free. You later decide, you know, there are a lot of kids in the inner city who need laptops. And so you expand now from giving massage services to fibromyalgia victims to providing laptops for inner city kids. You've changed the purposes. The IRS will say, you need to submit a new 1023, we've got a rule on it. Change your purposes, change your mode of uh, operation, and the IRS can, on their own motion, revoke your tax exempt status. Not that what you're doing uh, in, in the new activity is bad, it's just different. And they don't like to be surprised. The IRS is very surprise adverse. Yes, sir. Well, he has suggested that the way you get around this is basically uh, rephrase my old college history professor's typical exam question, please explain the causes, events, and results of the universe. (laughs) Sounds real good until you get down to your narrative in which you're gonna say how you do each of these things, and the reviewer who reviews this thing at IRS Covington, Kentucky is gonna say, okay, that is either a protester or he's playing games with us. And back it comes. Okay? That's the likely result of that. I don't mean to dwell on this extensively, but I just want you to, t- to get a feel for how uh, Snoopy, you know, Uncle Sam is getting with respect to this type of thing and the possible uh, abuses that can occur. And perhaps enough said on that. On page 11... I'm sorry, page 12 is where you sign this thing. Let's assume you're the incorporator. Let's assume you're the one applying. Just above your signature line, it says, I declare under penalties of perjury, I am authorized to sign this application. I have examined it, and to the best of my knowledge, it is true, correct, and complete. And the next thing that appears there is your signature and the date be careful because what you're signing is done under penalty of perjury they will hold you to it. Okay enough of form 1023 if you're curious about how complex this is here are the instructions for the form another 38 pages together with I think it's something like 12 pages of a suggested conflict of interest policy which you should adopt in which your board of directors is one of the initial Uh, meeting uh, actions your board should take they should adopt a conflict of interest policy designed to make this kind of thing impossible. Let's move on very quickly because time is short. We've talked about getting the exemption. One thing you hope to do is to describe a, a scope of activities that benefits enough people that the IRS will see you as a public charity, public benefit corporation, as opposed to a private foundation. One question please. Um, I just wanted to ask you if the board says going to be a if an executive committee The question basically is um, can you delegate a lot of board discretion to an executive committee and the answer is of course you can very proper that you do that but when the executive committee has made major decisions I strongly urge at the very next board meeting you go back review completely describe them and ratify them that way nobody's neck is hanging out it's far better to ratify and you can do this in retrospect let me add one other thing with respect to this if you get behind and it's easy to do you get busy you use understaffed and you get behind on your board meetings and your board minutes Please, please don't go back and create them as if they had been made back then. You know, the easiest mistake to make there would be to do it on your computer, save it, and all the government has to do is capture your hard drive and say, wait a second, the date stamp on this thing is March of 2009, and you're purporting this to be board actions as of, you know, September 2006 now you're involved in creating fraudulent minutes what you want to do is instead ratify say the following actions were taken in September of 2006 the board ratifies these as of 2009 there are right ways and wrong ways to do things please you know this ought to be self-evident what is the does the good book talk about in the Ten Commandments about the idea of being honest And everything we do, as was the case with Daniel, should be transparent as sunlight. He rose to the top of two world empires, antagonistic empires. He rose to the top of both, partly because he was so transparently honest. If he had to face death, he would gladly do it, but he wasn't giving up his principles. And in doing the Lord's work, we ought to do it in the same way. Some of these IRS uh, regulations are onerous. They're uh, they're time-consuming. But the intent is to avoid misuse of the system, and I think we can all respect that, even though sometimes we find it a little bit uh, of a heavy yoke to bear. I respect, I'm adverse to my counterparts in government. We go hammer and tongs in federal court, but I respect them. I know the job they have to do. I treat them with respect. And once we're not you know, adverse to each other on a, on a federal tax case, we're friends. And uh, you believe me, you get a lot further doing that. When you call the IRS up, and and the word gets out in the service center, you're talking to Walt, and you're talking, you know, whatever, whatever he says, you can take it to the bank. It's true. He's not going to play games with you. It's extremely important to have that relationship. You can get a whole lot more for your clients when you do that than if you come across basically being dishonest. So, I uh, just basic honesty is all I'm urging. Okay. Um, Let's move on to one more area here as time is about to expire on us and that is the concept of unrelated business income. It is very easy if you're engaging in any sort of commercial activity to maybe step outside the bounds of what the IRS says is really related to your exempt purpose. Let me give you a a very simple example. Let's assume you're a museum. Uh, You're a museum of Native American culture and art. It is perfectly proper for you to sell from your museum store items of Native American uh, manufacture, uh, culture, art, and so forth, entirely related to your corporate purpose. But if some of what you sell in your museum store are trinkets made in the People's Republic of China, even though they may have the word Navajo written across them, (laughs) At some point when you're merely selling souvenirs, the IRS is going to say, wait a second, give us a break. That is unrelated to your exempt purpose. That is unrelated business income. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that because if you engage in any commerce at all, it's very easy to fall into that trap. That's another trap in the minefield. There are three criteria under which your tax-exempt entity can be taxed. Can be subject to income tax. Number one, you're engaging in something that's a trader business. For example, a hospital's pharmacy dispenses drugs. That's a trader business. But is it unrelated business income? Well, let's go on to step number two. The activity has to be regularly carried on. Okay? And number three, it has to be not substantially related to your exempt function, to the charitable functions that, uh, that you started up to do. All right, now, let's put some flesh on that skeleton. We've created a skeleton here. Let's put some flesh on it. One of the strongest evidences of unrelated business income is a profit motive. The selling, for example, of trinkets, nominally in the name of Native Americans, but having nothing to do with legitimate Native culture, that's clearly a profit motive. Selling souvenirs is a profit motive. Selling Native American genuine artifacts is obviously a legitimate extension of the culture you're seeking to make people aware of. when you solicit uh, somebody, some, VFW used to do this all the time and sometimes I think some of our entities too too, they'll send out a little item uh, and basically request a, uh, a donation. The value of the item that was given to the donor should be subtracted from the tax-deductible balance. Uh, if the item that you send out is worth a buck and you're asking for five, then the donation really amounts to four dollars, I think that's reasonably clear. All right, regularly carried on. The second uh, item here as to whether your business is regularly carried on is simply the frequency and continuity with with respect to which it's done. And there are some examples here that are quite interesting. There was a symphony orchestra that was tax exempt. And every year they'd have a benefit concert, be with you in just a moment, and they would have a concert book. And so they would sell advertising in that. But their uh, efforts to sell this advertising went on all year long, even though the concert only happened once a year, and the IRS said...